Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. Unless you read deeply and in your own interest, unless you explore what is most profound in what has come before you, then you will never get down to the recesses of your own self. You will never learn what Ralph Waldo Emerson rightly called self-trust and self-reliance. So expounded the greatest reader of our modern age, the late Professor Harold Bloom. In addition to authoring such titanic works as The Anxiety of Influence, A Theory of Poetry, Shakespeare, The Invention of the Human, and the modestly titled The Western Canon, the books and school of the ages, Bloom was both a tireless champion of aesthetic merit over superficial posturing and an avid proponent of deep, solitary reading. In the so-called digital age, an age that has burdened mankind with more conveniences than he knows how to handle, such careful, contemplative reading is often the first casualty of a distracted mind. Everywhere we look, we see screens television screens, computer screens, tablet screens, and phone screens, now practically cyborg extensions of the human arm, and forever pinging us with messages and alerts all the day long. We are pelted with pixels at home and at the office, in restaurants and airport lounges, at the bank, in the car. Everywhere we turn, a screen is there to divert us, to capture our attention, and to consume our limited time on Earth with unending notifications and updates. But whatever happened to quiet time? What about opening an old book, settling into the reading chair, forgetting the world, and letting the imagination enter a realm all of its own? What about the self-trust and self-reliance which Emerson wrote about, the kind that begins with the life of the mind, a life that nourishes and sustains on quality literature? What about original ideas, Lessons learned, standing on the shoulder of giants. These questions, and plenty more, were on my own mind when I recently caught up with my good friend Chris Mayer. As longtime listeners will know, Chris is the portfolio manager of the Woodlock House Family Capital Fund and co founder of the firm, along with Bill Bonner. In addition to being an investor, author, world traveler, and a truly original thinker in his own right, Chris is also a devoted bookworm. He reads broadly across genres and deeply, especially when it comes to what he calls the big idea guys. During our conversation, Chris references dozens of books and authors that have helped shape him as a writer and as an investor, including some names with whom he delights in disagreeing and art quickly vanishing in contemporary public discourse. As the great American novelist Henry Miller wrote in his retrospective work, The Books in My Life, those who know how to read a man know how to read his books. One suspects here that the corollary is also true. 
And so with that, I'd like to invite you to join me as we take a virtual tour through the shelves of Mr. Mayer's library in my conversation with Chris, up next. So this is a great place to, to start the conversation, I think, because, well, first of all, there's a grand irony here because you're sitting in a very well-stocked uh, library and you can't see behind my computer here, but uh, I'm sitting in an empty library. I just moved apartments um, this <laughs> holiday season and I've got tons of books and computer cords and things on the floor. Uh, but if it's a bit echoey, it's because my, my library shelves are completely empty uh, at, at the moment. Um, but I remember, I, was just, I had to look this up actually, but it was eight years ago when speaking about giving away books, uh, you and I were backstage on the Capital Accounts show uh, down in DC with our good friend, Mr. Eric Fry. Uh, and you very kindly uh, gifted me your Henry Miller collection, which for those people who don't read a whole lot of Henry Miller, that's a pretty, a pretty good thwack of a shelf because he was nothing if not uh, hugely prolific. That's right. Um, and you had said at that particular time that you had been reading another book whose author was had counseled you not to be a slave to the bookshelf. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't know if you if you recall who that was, but I'm just wondering how your how you go about uh, curating. You know what is you know just a I think probably a lifelong addiction for those for those of us. That's who right. Can, uh, sympathize with the bibliophiles among us. Yeah. Uh, well, a lot of times I'll start with, uh, if, if books are the stuff, stuff that I keep sometimes, there's a certain part of the library. It's kind of a working library. So there's a lot of finance, investing, economic, economics, philosophy stuff that I dip back into again and again. And so those I tend to keep, uh, also books that are hard to replace. I keep, so some, some of the books I have are, I've been out of print for quite a while and to get them again would be expensive. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there's a certain amount of, you don't want to get too possessive about this stuff, you know? It's, so a lot of the books that are in still in print or easily replaced, those are the ones I tend to give away. Um, because then I think to myself, well, for some reason I have to have that book again, I can get it and it's right, not going right. to cost me a fortune and not that difficult. Yeah, but um, and so yeah, some... I like the uh, so I'm looking behind you here. I can't quite make out the the titles, but you mentioned that you have you know a finance section and uh, a work section, and you're you're one of the few um, readers that I know that's omnivorous in the way that you read both fiction and nonfiction. I don't know if you mm -hmm. get this as well, but I I meet a lot of people who who are really focused on either, you know, they only read the Western canon. It's just the yeah. classics and that's, that's their whole kind of thing. And they, they see everything else is just kind of a glorified how-to book. Right. Uh, and then you get the other side of, of readers who, you know, they read just to just basically for self-improvement to learn new things. Maybe they're historians or amateur botanists or whatever it is, but they won't touch fiction with a, with a 10 foot right. hole. So right. how do you marry those, uh, those two things? Are they all yeah, in I mean, your I office or spread around the house? Um, mostly in my office. There are, there are some books around the house, actually, yeah, that I just as a way to deal with some overflow, I shove some over there. <laughs> right. So there's another, there's another bookshelf downstairs now that you mentioned it that does have some things in there. 
I have some Jefferson and Franklin, some of the founders, some pretty books down there that look really nice and living rooms are, are down yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do. Have, I, I have a, I read widely, but I do have my interests. I mean, I, so on, on this side over here is mostly finance and investing. And, and on this side here, I have a philosophy, uh, mostly Western philosophy, but I do have quite a bit of Eastern philosophy above head here. Mm-hmm. And um, then behind me in the middle, I have a lot of what I just kind of call idea guys. So I have like, Neil Postman and Feynman and, mm-hmm. you know, these guys who you just, you know, brilliant about idea. Buckminster Fuller, Alfred Krasinski, it's a bunch of those kind of guys there. Uh, so, and then I've got this little corner here with a lot of fiction. So I've got my Fitzgerald and Orwell and, uh, you know, I have my particular favorites. I've got all of P.G. Woodhouse. Yeah, classic. Which classic. Is, uh, there's like, I think it's 99 volumes there. That, I mean, isn't that, I'm reading, um, uh, reading back through some of uh, Honoré de Balzac's catalogue, and I think he may be one of the only other, only other authors who might rival P.G. Woodhouse for just sheer yeah. output, just sheer shelf space. I mean. Exactly. Uh, he almost has, like, he has half the bookcases, just this stuff. <laughs> right. But, you know, he lived so long. He lived to be like 93 and he wrote to the very end. So he, Right. He averaged slightly better than a book a year, you know, because he started yeah. writing when he was very young too, when he was in his twenties. So, um, I, I, th- I think Balzac I, he Balzac died pretty young actually to make it to make his feat and even, accomplishment even, even more disappointing and <laughs> yeah, depressing for the rest of us. With uh, well, what's so shocking and, about Woodhouse too is that he, uh, you know, he maintained such a level for so long. I mean, his it's hard to tell. Some of the early stuff you can tell, and some of the late stuff he started to write mm-hmm. short. You know, when you get into the 80s and 90s, things start to thin out a little. Right, but right. There's this wide bulk of the middle where it's hard to tell. I mean, he just kept hitting a high note again and again and again. The way he used language just, uh, yeah. You know, you mentioned something. It reminds me of a line Hitchens said somewhere where he says, <clears throat> you know, that's what being a writer is. It's always t- testing you against people who are better, testing yourself against people yeah. who are better than you and always having the risk saying, why do I bother? And so right, sometimes right. When, I, when I read Woodhouse and I just read some of his sentences, I'm like, man, why do I bother? You know, this this guy. Right, right. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> yeah, I think I'm, I'm trying to think of who it was that he made that comparison with. This is we're talking about Christopher Hitchens, which we, we might get into talking a bit more about him later uh, and the importance of reading people that you disagree with. But I think in that particular instance, uh, the Hitch was was referring to or making a, making a comparison rather between, I think it was George Orwell, who he praised as being a very clear thinker um, and not necessarily a grand stylist. Uh, I mean, or- Orwell himself, of course, famously said that, that good writing is like a window pane. It's just, that's it, just clear what you see is what you get, kind of uh, straightforward ideas. And obviously he had the, uh, the weight of ideas to, to carry him through, but then Hitchens contrasted him to somebody like, say, Marcel Proust, who you, you open up a you know one of those tomes and yeah. there's like a three-page sentence with 48 semicolons and you know subordinated clauses and you just think oh my goodness I'm why bother why bother when there's guys like this doing that right <laughs> a bit, you get a right. bit depressing <laughs> yeah so you mentioned that you had some uh, some big idea guys big big thinkers and I right. uh, thought maybe we could start with the general and start with yeah. your your philosophers uh, and and your macro thinkers, and then maybe we could whittle it down to some of your 
your go-to uh, specific investors, uh, specific writers for investing rather, but right. why don't you start us off, mate? Right. So the general philosophers, I mean, I could, I could talk about a handful or more of people for sure, but I think if I have a favorite, I'll, I'll mention a few favorites. And um, two of them are kind of difficult, but one of them is very good books to read. So anyway, I'll start. The first one I, I think of is Alfred Krasipsky. Not very well known. He was uh, born in 1879, died in 1950. He created the discipline called general semantics, which is kind of like, think of it as a, a framework for critical thinking. And so uh, he wrote a number of uh, big books. And I, uh, in fact, my book, How Do You Know, is, is applies his framework to investing. So that tells you how important it is to me. I've, I've used a lot of his stuff. So uh, the problem with him, again, is it's hard to recommend a specific book because they're difficult, but I got one here that's very easy to read and it's called General Semantic Seminar 1937, mm -hmm. Olivet College Lectures. And um, this is pretty easy to read. It's not very long, only 200 pages, and you get a pretty good sense for what his project's all about. But if I had to describe it, I'd say like Krasipsky's big into how our language influences how we think and how we can, how our language can misrepresent uh, what they're intended to describe. So a famous phrase of his is the map is not the territory. That's Krasipsky's. And that's his okay. most famous phrase. Everybody has ever heard it, maybe not heard of Krasipsky, but they know that. Mm -hmm. Another thing that he had, one of his innovations is he was one of the first to use air quotes like this. Okay. So, uh, you know, problematic words. So, uh, you know, if you say, well, capitalism, you know, we put quotes because what does it mean, right? To different people means different things. It's not a real, not something like an animal in the backyard we go point to. There's capitalism. You know, it's, right. a, it's an it's idea. It's a funny looking animal. <laughs> yeah, it's very vague. And there's a lot of words like that. We talk about democracy and freedom and um so those are the kinds of things and he's really influenced me a lot that way um another guy i like a, gr a great deal is buckminster fuller and again similar he's his books can be technical and difficult but um, for him it's more his life too his the way he lived his life he was big into thinking for yourself and experimenting um again put some context that bucky was he liked to be called bucky he was born in 1895, died in 1983, did a lot of things. He was an inventor, um, mathematician, poet, uh, just did a lot, of, a lot of different things. He's most famous for the geodesic dome. It's kind of, he popularized that. One of his pet phrases that I love is, is uh, dare to be naive. So he had this idea that no matter what people think, and if, even if you have all these impressive thinkers arrayed, you know, don't think that uh, there isn't something yet to be learned or something to change. And so I really take a lot from him. <clears throat> and again, his books are hard, but there's one anthology that I like a lot. And I would recommend if you want to start with Buckminster Fuller, you can start with Anthology for the New Millennium. Mm -hmm. And this has selections from all of his different works. And it has each piece has a nice introduction written by somebody. So it kind of puts it in context and that way you can, you know, kind of see what you like about Bucky and you can pursue whatever direction you want. Because he wrote about architecture, some of his stuff was about designing cars, houses. Then he would write about 
you have two big fat books on geometry. I mean, he's really <laughs> one of those original kind of American genius types that I was really mm -hmm. find inspiring. Yeah, the third guy I mentioned, man, that's, oh, yeah, ahead, it's kind of like a modern, a modern Renaissance man. He, he was a great admirer of Einstein's as well. In fact, I wrote a paper recently comparing the ideas of Korzybski and Buckminster Fuller, and that will be published this year in etc. It's an academic journal, oh, but uh, yeah, something Very I nice. a little bit. Look out for yeah. that, for sure. Something I do a little bit on the side <clears throat> yep. as well. But then the other philosopher that I really like, big picture guy, wrote, wrote beautifully, spoke beautifully, uh, is Alan Watts. Okay. Uh, and there's a lot of, I probably have close to 40 of his books. He probably published, they're thin. A lot of them are thin. There's probably published close to 20 in his, his lifetime. And then there's been a bunch of stuff comes out, that come out after he's died um transcripts of his talks you can find him on youtube and listen to him he's a great talker he's one of these guys whose voice is just he's got a great voice and he seems to be one of those guys who speaks in complete sentences you can just put it down in a page and publish it it's a lost so, art, uh, i think yeah oh <laughs> uh, yeah he's great at that i really admire that skill so uh yeah he also had wrote a memoir it's very good i have a collection of his letters some of his academic work but the book that got the first book i wrote was called the book by alan watts mm -hmm. so um they've republished it this is an old cover so your cover will look different but it's called alan watt it's called the book on the taboo against knowing who you are by alan watts and um you know for me alan watts was kind of the my entree into eastern philosophy that's what he's known for he writes about zen and taoism and vedanta and those kinds of things, but he has his own spin on those things as well. But um, I like the way he kind of uh, changes your perspectives on a lot of different things. And he writes so well, so he has some really nice metaphors. So I'll give you one that I remember. Um, he talks about cause and effect. Like we always talk about, you know, something happens, something follows it. And we talk, think in terms of cause and effect, but he says, you know, if you think about it, uh, our view of the universe might be much more limited than that. And so he uses the example, like if you were looking through a peephole and you saw a cat head walk by and then later you saw the tail follow, and then you see the cat head walk back the other way and a tail follow, you might naturally say that one caused the other, mm -hmm. but you know, it's all really just one cat. It's just kind of right. one event. And uh, so I often think about that, about how, even when I'm thinking about economics and politics and other things about how everything is really connected and they may be connected in ways we don't really understand or perceive and so it makes me very cautious of simple cause and effect or this happened and this happened and that's just one small example but um even when he talks about people he, he thinks of them as he says people are like whirlpools or like flames they're patterns um i like that idea too because there's not like there's a there's a self there's a joel bowman that just that's it that's joel right it's more like you're a pattern that is gone on over time kind of change but there's a signature that's that makes you joel but there's lots of things that change um, yeah inc so including every single cell in in one's body over the course of yeah. one's lifetime so then you know what we get into some exactly questions about what is the self and uh, and so forth but i love that uh i, I didn't want to interrupt your flow there but I, I going back to to bucky fuller i loved that uh that quote about daring to be naive and i think part of that uh that speaks a lot to reading and i tell yeah. I, have, I have a five-year-old girl and i tell her uh this a lot when 
you know, she's always, she's at the age where everything is a question, you know, always asking you, but why daddy, but why is this, but why is that? And, you know, of course that, that forces or rather invites her parents to examine what we think we know. And then sometimes we think, oh, actually, I'm not quite sure about why that is so. I've right. always just kind of taken it for granted. But I always think about the, the ways, or at least my daughter is teaching me to think about the ways in which we think we know things. And so at the beginning, we, we think, okay, she's at the age she's learning, you know, the alphabet and small words and things, sight words. And so we think, okay, let's, we, we learn that there is such a thing called an alphabet to start with. Yeah. Think, okay, we've yeah. got 26 letters. And then you think, okay, well, I get to the end of this 26 letters and then I'm going to know the alphabet. And then dad comes along and says, well, there are these things called words and they are combinations of letters. And then all of a sudden your, your field of potential knowledge is blown out to the, you know, the entire dictionary. And then you think you've got a pretty good grasp on a, on a uh, vocabulary and certain jargonish uh, you know vernacular and then someone comes along and says oh well, that's just one language you know there yeah. are many on the, on the planet and they form sentences and concepts and ideas and so i kind of feel like that with reading and just listening to you you know highlight in particular three real polymaths uh, there that whenever you get into uh, you know you get into one book it's it's pretty common especially when these kind of, these kinds of thinkers are concerned that they will lead you on to other books. Uh, and I know, I know over the years, just having read, uh, read your columns through the years, that you'll invariably mention, uh, you know, at the end of an issue or at the end of an alert, hey, there's, you know, these are a few ideas, tidbits that you just have kind of swirling around because you're, you're swimming in your, in your library all the time. So yeah. it's, it's, I feel like it's rather than just one static thing, one static course or syllabus, it's an ongoing project that uh, hopefully will last our whole lives. That's right. And some of these books, I like to call them doorway books because they're just that way. It's like you read that book and it's a doorway and a whole bunch of other things. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, things you had no idea about. So I, you know, you just find new thinkers, new ideas, things you weren't aware of. Those yep. are very valuable and you just keep going and going and going. <laughs> and oftentimes you find, um, you know, some of, our favorite writer, I mean, I know we have a, a bunch of mutual favorite writers, but, but those guys read really widely as well. And, you That's know, right. very different, dis different disciplines and different interests. And I was one of the books that was included in that Henry Miller uh, shelf that, that you gifted me those years ago was a book that he wrote called The, the Books of My Life. Uh, yeah. And I was just going through his you know, terrific book. Hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of, of, um, of authors to whom he paid homage and you know he was very open about his um his his purloining certain phrases and uh and ideas right. and and ways of thinking and this is interesting um, too because with reading like you said you know people partition it off and they only want to read fiction or nonfiction or this or that and one of the things i take from bucky as well he would talk a lot about this is there are no such divisions like that in nature he goes, nature yeah. doesn't have a biology department, a physics department. And, <laughs> you know, when nature right. wants to make a flower, doesn't consult with the, you know, <laughs> the latest biological theories. He the also had something the, yeah. Exactly. He used to love this. I, I like, he used to say, like, nature doesn't use pi. You know, pi, which is, yeah. you know, goes on repeating infinitely. And, and so he was always about, you know, what is the world like? We're the ones who divide it up and chop it up and put knowledge yeah. in all these little buckets and, and a lot of these kind of thinkers, they don't, that we're mentioning, they don't really respect those boundaries. They just go wherever they're. That's right. I was thinking, of, one. 
as you're saying that uh, nature not knowing any boundaries, it recalls to mind the um, uh, Harari uh, book, Sapiens, where he talks about imagined circumstances, not imaginary borders, for example, but imagined borders. It's not that a political boundary doesn't exist, but it's that we've, ima we've imagined it into existence. So right. yes, you still have to deal with the real world consequences of not respecting that border if you just, you know, kind of careen sure. through the through the uh, through, through the boom right. gate without getting your passport presented, but but these are things that we've kind of transposed onto our our reality, and then we and then the, I always find it interesting that it's difficult for certain imagined things such as borders to be for us to unimagine those things, to, for us to imagine a world um, you know previous to, to to those realities that we've kind of foisted upon it, and I I, I think it might have been uh, Harry Brown who who made the observation that, you know, if we, if we sent our children off to school at such a young age that that's where they learned to walk, uh, for some people it would be very, very difficult to imagine civilization ever being able to get, you know, up off its all fours without the aid of public, public education. Oh, that's uh, right. So trying to, trying to unimagine those things is, um, uh, is an interesting Oh, of course. And, you know, there's different things. I like, I like the idea of, you know, looking at the planet from space, you know, you don't see any borders, you don't see any, you know, it's a clear way of seeing that all these nations and ideas of different peoples and this, that's our, it's our imagination. It's our creation, you know? Right. And they may, I mean, some of those things may serve, you know, that looking back with, uh, retrospect, we, we can have a look at some of those things and say, oh, okay, that, that particular institution may have served a role to get us from point A to point B. It might have yeah. catalyzed some kind of, some kind of uh, you know, advancement in the whole human project. But I think, I think we hang on to a lot of those things as kind of vestigial societal organs right. that maybe we might have needed, but um, you know, maybe, maybe we don't need, uh, given, given what we've got today. Just one last thing on the... Um, on that education thing, I guess I'm thinking about my daughter's education a bit today, so I'm on that bent. But I think it was um, uh, George Bernard Shaw was debating with, I want to say Bertrand Russell, but someone will pick me up on this if I'm incorrect, but uh, they were having a debate about the institution of public education uh, in the UK and whether or not it was, it was necessary. <clears throat> and I think it was Russell, no, it was GK Chesterton, pardon me, who came out and said, um, accused his, his opponent of idiocy in the following manner. His opponent was arguing for public education and Chesterton came out and said, you're, you're like the idiot who wanders out into the rain with an umbrella to water the plants. <laughs> this is, we will take care of ourselves. We do have these resources and we, we yeah. don't need to superficialize them <laughs> right. into existence. We, we will take care of one another. Yeah, people, people will. That's right. Yeah. Well said. All right, mate. So who have we got next? Let, we've moved on from some pretty big thinkers. Good recommendations. Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, you know, we, we both love to travel. And it's something well, we I haven't done, <laughs> I haven't done yeah. really at all in 2020. Don't mention the, the yeah. T word. Yeah. I know. <laughs> but I think it's something that certainly impacts us both. And so, um, you know, I like to think about certain travel writers that or, or have influenced influenced me. So I always think of Anthony Bourdain, but not necessarily, you know, he wrote a few, few books that were, that are definitely good, but most of his works, cause it's on, on television and he inspired me in a lot of different ways that way. In fact, people 
I have been called Anthony Bourdain of finance at least a couple of times, which I consider a great honor. <laughs> very good, very good. <laughs> um, but another guy I, I like, I'll take off my shelf here because I have quite a bit of his material and um, is actually something that Bourdain introduced me to. He wrote, he wrote the introduction to one of his books um, and this guy named Ludwig Bemelmans. Oh, so, okay. uh, new name. I'll get my yeah. pen out. Bemelmans is a guy, if people know him at all, he's the guy who wrote the children's stories, uh, the Madeline stories. Oh, but he, okay. Madeline in Paris, Madeline in That's London. right. Yeah, he go. wrote those. But what people, a lot of people don't know is that he also wrote for adults. And he would write in books like Holiday and The New Yorker and, you know, Vanity Fair, these other kind of magazines. And he, and he wrote books where he collected a number of his short stories. Some of it's autobiographical, some of it's fiction. He wrote maybe six or seven novels. I have all his novels. I have all, almost all of his sh short story collections. And he was also an illustrator, painter. So I have a couple over, saw his folios of his artwork. Um, I really am. I like his art. We have a, we have a Bemelman's painting sitting in our kitchen, actually. Wow. It's a, he used to paint covers for the New Yorker. And so a lot of what he writes about is, is travel because that's what he did. He traveled all over the place, but a lot of his stories and paintings take place in restaurants and bars and, hotel lobbies. And uh, so I really like that. It's just as a theme. Um, I remember New York historical society put on an exhibition of his art. I think it was in 2014 and I <clears throat> made the pilgrimage to see that. Uh, and I bought one of the little books that they had sold there. And it was like 20 bucks. And I see on Amazon now it's worth like 300. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so a nice, nice investment there by accident. Yeah. <clears throat> but uh, like I say, he wrote a lot about, uh, you know, he would travel all over. He one of his books is called Italian Holiday, and he visits the Italian Riviera and visits towns like Portofino, and also visits Rome and Pisa. And <clears throat> another of his books is called The Donkey Inside, where he visits Ecuador and he spends a lot of time on foot riding a donkey and visiting all these little towns. And um, but mostly he traveled in all through France and, and Germany, Aust Austria. He was actually born in the Austrian Tyrol in eighteen ninety eight. And he died in 62 or 63, I think. Um, he, most of his books are very light. So they're very light stories, almost Woodhouse-esque. Or another writer who reminds me of is Damon Runyon. Damon Runyon writes these short stories and he creates this little fictionalized world that's not quite realistic, but kind of realistic. It's kind of... Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, Ben Mullins writes... Uh, he writes about cooks, particularly with a special kind of poetry, you know, fat fingers, buttering pots and sitting uh -huh. on <laughs> carrots, feeding them into the carrot knife. And he was a bon vivant himself. He, he loved his cigars and his Virginia hams and shepherd's pies and wines. And uh, so he wrote a lot about food, yep. you know, waiters and cooks. So this is this kind of thing. And um, most of his books are very happy and light. There's one book that's somber. It was called The Best of Times, where he went to Europe in the immediate aftermath of World War II. And he kind of visits a lot of his old haunts in, in Paris and also in Regensburg, Germany, where he grew up. And of course, the places are in rubble and shambles and the restaurants are not as, are all sh shallow, you know, sh of the shadows of their former selves. So that's a little bit of a depressing book. But in fact, I remember he sets out, he starts, he says, I set out to write a happy book, but he found otherwise. Yeah. Um, but most of his books are very light and cheerful. And in fact, I have, he's, 
sometimes he's been called the professor of happiness. And so I have a little corner where it's a lot of his stuff in Woodhouse and I call yep. that happiness corner. If I'm ever, <laughs> if I'm in a bad mood, I go wander over there and those guys make me happy again. Yeah. Um, it's, it's funny yeah. just even, even wandering around a, uh, wandering around a, a man's library, you can wander around kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. different emotional states. But Yeah, but yeah, the, that's the, definitely true with me. I think so. <clears throat> so I picked out a couple. I mean, a lot of his books are, are not in print. Again, I, mean, I don't know why, why I have these affinities for these authors that then go out of style. And, but um, some of them are. And so there's two, two collections by Overlook Press that I particularly think are good to, to start. One is called Hotel Bemelmans. This is the one that uh, Bourdain wrote the forward for. Mm -hmm. And then there's this one, when, uh, when You Lunch with the Emperor. So you can see it. His art is, of course, in all of his stories. And that's what's nice, too. You have these little sketches of, of his and his artwork with his story. So it really creates a, I don't know, certain ambiance to his stories. Uh -huh. But these are all just like stories that have been pulled from his books. And, and you get a sense uh, for for his stories and whether you like them or not. But I, I think a lot about Bemelman's when I, especially when I travel and cause he had a way of just kind of observing and enjoying where he was and, and uh, yeah, enjoying kind of the good things in life. So it's interesting to, well, first of all, just that, that it's not unusual. I think I was thinking of like um, Belloc or, uh, or Roldale or, or some of these other guys who wrote both for children and, uh, but more famously yeah, for right. children and then right. uh, wrote for adults, but had these really kind of hyper imaginative episodes. You imagine them kind of sitting down at their, their keyboard. I imagine Roald Dale as illustrated by Quentin Blake, of course, sitting down, you know, it's stick figure banging it out at the, banging out the twits or witches or George's Marvelous right, Medicine, right. all those like kid classics. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you do find a lot of times that those, that those writers have incorporated, um, you know, their own little spots around the yeah. world uh, and, and brought those experiences into their narratives. And I was thinking I've read Kitchen, I reread Kitchen Confidential. Oh yeah. Uh, a couple, maybe a year ago. And at the end of that book, he, he recommends a couple of other, uh, a couple of other authors. And uh, one of them was, I, I just read George Orwell's down and out in Paris and that's London. right. That's where I got that. He recommends Zola, the belly of Paris. Yep. That's, yes. I read, exactly. I read the, that. I read that because of Bourdain and, uh, Liebling. Yep. yep. Yeah. Liebling a, wrote a book about Paris. Uh, I forget what it's called. One of these little, these little wormholes you get into, yes. you get one yes, author yes, and then yes. you, then you, you find yourself all of a sudden 10 books later. And yeah, on, another on one was uh, Nicholas Freeling was another one of the books he mentioned Bourdain mentioned. So you're right. He, he suddenly you're in this little sub genre of, Traveling, right. traveling gourmands, you know, traveling, yeah, <laughs> little gourmandizing around Europe or, yeah, exactly. you know, writing and right there drinking and eating. I mean, and Bell, that's interesting about Bellman's too, is that people used to say he could order beautifully in three languages, you know, French, German, and, and English. <laughs> yeah, that's, so that's spoke, a compliment. Yeah, he spoke all three. And, uh, and I do what I admire about Bellman's too is he could, in a way, incorporate his art and into the story. So he could do both. I mean, that's a real. Mm. That's a real skill. I imagine, you know, being able to write a short story and then also provide three or four little paintings or sketches to go with it. That's pretty nice. That's a yeah, nice skill. Sure. But yeah, you're right. I mean, that's Bourdain was the doorway guy here that introduced me to Bellman's. I would never knew, would never have guessed, found yeah. out that Bellman's wrote for adults if I didn't come across a Bourdain. 
Thanks again to Bourdain. I'm thinking of the, the author who wrote, uh, who's an American author, uh, another one of these larger-than-life characters. He wrote, um, oh, uh, Legends of the Fall, John? Oh, uh, yes, um, Jim Harrison. Jim Harrison. Yeah, that's, that's another right. guy in, in that same kind of subgenre. I've read some books of his. Yeah, I'm thinking of in that. In fact, uh, when Bourdain had a show, No Reservations, there's one where he goes to Montana and hangs out with Jim Harrison. Oh, that's a, a classic. If you, didn't can, catch if you that want one. to find, if you want to find that, yeah, Google Anthony Bourdain, Jim Harrison, no reservations, and watch that oh, episode. Oh, for sure, pretty cool. Wow, what, what a treat! Yeah, I remember that there was one story of Harrison's where he, uh, I think he was quite the oyster aficionado, and he, yeah. he flew over to, I guess it would have been Normandy or Brittany, but maybe Concal, and they had, um, I don't know, some some. Harvest in that particular year was it was a particularly good wine that that he was drinking and, and he flew out from his you know very very deserted and isolated existence in the middle of Montana out to out to France so he could sit down and indulge in uh, in what he called the dozen dozen which is 12, <laughs> 12 dozen oysters <laughs> so down and washed it down with a couple of uh, yeah he was a great eater of, of also a good cook <laughs> and a good yeah. <laughs> Yeah, another man of many skills. All right, definitely. And uh, so this, uh, this. Do we have more on the on the on the traveling theme, or you know, I think that. Uh, I mean, there's there's several others. I mean, I think those are my favorites: Bourdain, Bellman's. Yeah. Um, well, Henry Miller wrote some great, great stuff. Of course, his book on Greece, in particular, I really love. Yeah, Colossus of Marusi. That's a that's a big one. I remember you mentioning to me years ago, um, Orwell's uh, Travels Through Burma as being uh, oh, yes. something you were Yes, I read that. I read by. that while I was in Burma, which is now Myanmar. So, so uh, isn't yeah. that something, isn't that just another treat altogether? You're, you're in India reading Ian Forrester or, you know, whomever. And, Absolutely. And I do that all the time. The perspective. I do that all the time. Wherever I go, I try to, try to read some things of where I'm going to be, find, yeah. find something. You know, sometimes there's not always places, but... Uh, like, you know, Bellman's, he, a lot of his stories too happen in New York City. There's actually, he, um, at the Carlisle Hotel, there's a, Bem there's a place called the Bellman's Bar where he did the murals on the, oh. of the whole bar. And so I made a pilgrimage there, of course, to see that. And, uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, where you travel and then if you have some of these guys when you're, I mean, there's some cities which there's plenty about Paris, New York, of course, but right. it's, um, also interesting if you can get off the beaten path a little. I mean, India, Burma was a good one with Orwell. Yep. I'm trying to think of some others, but I know that that was something I routinely did when I would travel to some place. I tried hard to find some kind of travel book of somebody who'd written about going through there. Yeah, even it could be a hundred years ago. It doesn't matter. It's just to give you the color. Yeah, or in, or even places where they where those writers uh, frequented. You know, you can go to. There's a few of yeah. Henry. Uh, a few of. Um, Hemingway's bars, or at least bars that claim Hemingway's patronage in you know, around Havana, right. uh, for oh, example, where you can go and have a, you know, go and have a whatever he whatever he drank or probably not much that well, he, he probably didn't drink, but yeah, <laughs> there you go, Cuba Libre, so whatnot. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's a good that's a good thing to do. And so, from um, from broadening one's perspective, you know, just geographically. Um, how do you find, I mean, I've, I've written emails to you, uh, I say to people sometimes, 
oh yeah, I've, I can write to Maya from the weirdest places and just yeah. say, hey, hey, Chris, what should I be uh, on the lookout for here? I remember one time in Morocco, uh, my wife and I were, were hanging out in Marrakesh, going to some hammams and, you know, doing some camping and whatnot. And I thought I should write to Mayor and just ask what's up with Morocco. Oh, you've got to check out. So for the phosphate industry, that's a bit. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you were right onto it. You, right. And sometimes and, that happens with like even small time. I remember one time I went to Columbus, Ohio, and I was like, oh, well, I'm there. I should check out the Thurber Museum. He used to live right. there. So <laughs> I, wind up, I wind up going to like James Thurber's house. You know? <laughs> I think we got right here a little picture of his desk. You know? Right. <laughs> So that, that's definitely something that I do is if I go to a certain town, I'll go, oh, yeah, who's here that I want to check out or see or right. make a little pilgrimage to their spot, you know? So as a, as a roving uh, investor, because you, you've got, you know, kind of, a, kind of a, a big world when it comes to the ideas that you're, that you're pulling from and that you're filtering yeah. down into what you decide is a, is a good idea or an investable asset or, or whatever, right. um, is there kind of a nexus between... The, the travel that you've done, the books that you've read, and and the ideas that they have yielded for you uh, over oh, the years. Oh yeah, I mean that's definitely uh, that's been the nexus. I think it's kind of my little formula there for a while. It's like travel, investing, you know, right. intersect there, and then bring in some sort of try to bring in some sort of literary literary flavor to the whole thing. But um, yeah, I definitely enjoy doing that, and even now, I mean, I. I can't help myself. Uh, for example, I'm doing some research on a variety. It's about three or four Swedish companies. And strangely enough, oh, this is... Got to go to Sweden. Oh. Yeah, I was like, well, that's what I'm saying. I gotta, and strangely <laughs> enough, that's one place I haven't been. It's a little hollow spot there in the map, which yeah. is weird, weird. But I would love to go there. But of course, I find myself suddenly like reading a little more of different history of Sweden and a little... I'm sure I'll find something eventually, you know. That I'll want to read, and then I'll go there, and I'll have the book in hand. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's such so a richer it, experience. For of course, of course, and I'll, certainly I'll have some sites and things that I'll want to check out. So that's definitely a marriage between all those things. Yeah, <clears throat> and so um, moving along to, I guess what's what I, I feel like we could we could probably ramble down literary rabbit holes all, all day, but <laughs> but. When it, when it comes, to, I was thinking earlier when you were talking when we we're talking about the evolution of someone's bookshelf and not being a slave to you know this kind of this kind of set ideas. Yeah, I, I was wondering with uh, with regards to investing in particular, it'd probably be unfair to ask, um, at least unfair to the authors, if you had um, certain investors that you were enamored with when you were younger, but then kind of grew out of those ideas. So I'll ask the question in reverse. Were there, are there books uh, or investors slash authors that you picked them up when you were younger and thought, oh, okay, maybe, but then as the years went on and you, the, the yeah. wisdom of, of time descended upon you, you thought, oh, wow, that's actually a much more important lesson than yeah, I maybe yeah, gave, yeah, yeah. gave credit for. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's definitely true. Uh, yeah, I mean, there have definitely been a number of authors that were big to me when I was younger. I don't really pay much attention to now or don't read as much now, but the reverse is also true. So that was one of the one guys I was going to, I was going to mention to you actually. So, um, this guy named Martin Sosnoff, who was a money manager in the sixties, all, and he retired recently, a few years ago, and now he's pushing 90, but, um, his books were very kind of. I don't know, 
call them experiential. Like he'd write a lot about just the experiences of it and his emotions. And he, he did, he wasn't like necessarily so analytical, but he had a way also of, uh, he had conceptual power of just kind of reducing money management and investing to um, kind of essentials. And he's one of the guys who got me into the whole idea about owner operators. And I remember his, mm. uh, one of his lines was entrepreneurial instinct equates with insider ownership. That was something uh -huh. that I read awesome. early on and has stuck with me forever. Yep. Uh, so he writes about that a lot. He is another guy, something called, it's become called Sosnoff's law, which is that the, your return varies inversely with the thickness of your research file. Which is another <laughs> another way of his, you know, getting down to the essentials and the um, the of the investing thesis. You know, the more you work on, it, the thicker it's got to be. Probably, it's not going to be a very good idea. The best ideas are usually very simple, you know, and very mm -hmm. compelling. So that's something. Another takeaway. There's a lot of different takeaways, and he's a very good writer. He's a very good writer. He writes vividly with metaphors and he's he can be very self-deprecating some of his early books you know he he writes about himself sometimes in unflattering ways you know so when i was younger i didn't appreciate all that as much because i was more interested in you know give me the secrets what how do i do what do i do how do i do right. but you know as the years have gone by and as i get older i much more appreciate you know the black and blue nature of all his experiences and the way he shares things that he screwed up and all those other things that maybe a younger analyst isn't so attuned to, but I have scars on my back too now. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember a, a mutual, a mutual friend of ours who's, uh, his, his name I won't mention, but he, um, a, a fellow that we both hung out with in, in Dubai and Austria and various other places. He, I remember him telling me one, one night over some, uh, some, libations and probably some hookah and uh, yeah I, I remember him telling me one of his one of the best lessons that he ever learned in investing was one of his uh, one of his mentors took him to a casino and said i want you to bring along a meaningful amount of money something that will sting if you lose it and took him along to a casino and said we're not getting up from whatever table it was the craps table or whatever until until you lose everything and Jeez. then <laughs> it was a pretty expensive lesson, but, but yeah, yeah. He, he went along and did that. And he said, okay, so now it's real. Now it's visceral. Now you can, you can internalize the emotions, you know, that kind right. of roller coaster that you go through and all those kind of things where you win a little bit more and you want to get out, but you double down and you go through the whole, you know, the whole uh, theater of making all those wrong impulse decisions. And yeah. sometimes it's, it's only by, uh, it's only by making those mistakes that, that you can start recognizing the, the little red flags when you, when you see them in the future. And, and hopefully, uh, you know, you're dealing with, with larger amounts of capital and, and things like that, but then you can, then you can, uh, you can recognize those in advance if you do your homework. Definitely. And uh, yeah, so with Sosnoff, uh, there's two books in particular that I like. His first book came out in 1975. It's called Humble on Wall Street. And then the other one came out in the 80s, I want to say, Maybe it was 86. It's called Silent Investor, Silent Loser. So these are the two right here. Again, out of print. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you got to get them used. This is my used copies. And they're both, you know, heavily uh, annotated. Yeah, plenty plenty <laughs> of marginalia. It's one of these things where it's like falls open because it's been, you know, <laughs> opened and closed so many times. But he's, yeah. he's, a, he's a very good writer. And the other thing he does is... Uh, you know, he has, well, I feel like I want to 
read something out of it, but maybe, maybe I won't do that. But he also has this interest in art. He's an art collector. And he has a nice way of tying in his interest in art to investing, kind of the mm. similar worlds. You know, I remember one time he writes about how, well, you know, talking about the value of companies and trying how they're can't necessarily always explain them. And he'll say, it's just like there are certain paintings uh, in the past that had a huge value. Why is because, you know, two princes wanted the same, wanted the same painting. You know, that was, that's yeah. all it took. And right. it reminds you that that's how investing works too. Why is something trading where, where it is as well? It's, it's just where people are willing to pay for it right now. It doesn't necessarily mean anything about, you know, that's what it's worth. Um, so he has a lot of ways where he ties in art and he's written other books. So there's he's written three other books and I think they're all in print. So, but mm -hmm. the, I think my favorites are the ones, the early ones. So I actually met him too. I, uh, reached out to him. It was, it was, uh, I think around 2015 and, um, he's just what I expect. He's just like his books. He's this gruff New Yorker from the Bronx, you know, <laughs> very blunt talker, you know, but, he could, I guess he could clearly detect that, you know, I wasn't just some guy who just, you know, wanted to talk to him. I had read his books and I, it was, right. you know, I guess he picked up on the, the clear affinity I had for what he was saying. So he, he met mm -hmm. with me and I spent, and then we, we got along pretty well. I was in his office for over an hour. He was just oh, telling these stories and yeah, and talking about things. So, uh, so that was that was nice sometimes when you meet people and they are who you expect them because a lot of times you don't necessarily want to meet them because they're not at all who you thought they were. <laughs> right, exactly. I have some examples that way, which I will not mention. <laughs> right, there you go. <laughs> but Sosnov was one of those I was I was pleased about. Yeah, that that's a very interesting uh, that's a very interesting observation that he brings uh, where he uses art to bring in essentially it would be a Miesian kind of uh, subjective value theory <clears throat> yeah. with regards to price. Again, we go back to the beginning of the conversation, prices, price being something that we, you know, that we transpose upon a transaction, but it's yeah. not set in cement, you know, and, and something that was, that is worth a certain price today, you know, given a different set of circumstances, given a different, a different time, a different era, um, yeah. will be worth something you know completely different. I always think about people, you know, uh, what would you be willing to to spend on a bottle of water? Depending if you're you know standing under Niagara Falls or like in the middle of the desert. I mean, obviously your circumstances are going to change. Right. The, the, yeah, I the love that example. Fact, I've, I've used that example for in a speech where I'll ask people, well, what's more valuable? Uh, you know, a diamond. What would you rather have? I think I used the example of a gold bar or a glass of water. Of course, everyone says the gold bar is more valuable. But then I said, right. well, what if we were in desert, you know, right, right. and you hadn't had anything to drink drink for two days, which would you rather? <laughs> changes, it changes. It suddenly changes pretty quickly. Right, right, inverted. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's right. <clears throat> so, yeah, so he's one I definitely like. I mean, there are others, but I feel like I have to mention, uh, have to mention Thomas Phelps, who's, okay. who wrote 100 to 1 in the stock market. Yep. Uh, of course, and that because I... You know, this, this is, is your yeah yeah i inspired by him to update this book so this this there's a new cover this is uh the original it's been re republished and this one i actually got interestingly enough is signed by him too all right was that is 19, that a, was that a personal signature or just, that was just a, no it was one of these where i bought it used and it just happened to have an inscription you know it just oh, says nice. his name and it dates it. it's 1983 and he wrote the book in 72 this is a 72 hardcover so this book is right. as old as i am <laughs> <laughs> there he is 
looking at his old square head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he must have been a nice guy. I don't know. So I love him because he's another guy who, uh, you know, because I like to write, you know, I'm yep. attracted to the guys who are also good writers who can, you know, and he's a good writer. He has a lot of interesting metaphors. I mean, some of the things I remember, he's taught one chapter, he's talking about fraud and he'll say, you know, why you're as an investor, you have to, you have to be, you know, careful about these things and, and then you won't get defrauded. And he uses an example. He says, um, if not for thieves, there would not be locks. And basically he says that another word, another line he uses somewhere as he says, uh, where there are no antelopes, there are no lions. So, you know, <laughs> he has a way with metaphors. He's very Buffett-esque that way. So, but, you know, this is another book that I think I first read it in 2011. And so not, not when I was, you know, a later book, but, um, it's one whose my appreciation for it has increased over time. Uh, I think he's got a lot of good wisdom in here. And his book, he studies all the stocks that went up at least 100 to 1 from 1932 to 1972. And then okay. I picked up the baton and updated it to 2014. Yep. So, um, you know, some of it's a little dated, <clears throat> but... Uh, um, you know, I think in the main, there's a lot of a lot of good wisdom in here. And again, my copy has um, lots of, you know, highlighting here about you know different passages that I like. He's pretty he's pretty good. So, so he's another one I definitely would recommend. So I I like that you mentioned uh, there these people's uh, literary acumen as well because it's it really is. Um, it really is an art to be able to convey something that, you know, to one person is just sort of a bunch of, you know, dry equations and analytical, you know, heavy lifting, but to put it in the human context and, yeah. and to, you know, to, to convey the fact that really this, in, in some ways, investing is, is, is kind of like a, a, a mirror of humanity. You know, we have mm -hmm. these, these big manias and we have bull markets, we have disappointments, we have, you know, all these emotions that go into it. but uh, there's there's a lot more than just uh, you know some yeah. sums and uh, and equations and I think that uh, that those writers in particular they'll 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 bring that out. Yeah, it's like another way to tell a human story. You know, you tell it through politics, you can tell it through war, you can tell it through markets and investing. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think that is the art. I used to say when I wrote my newsletter, I would think that the real art in writing a newsletter is to write something that a professional will read and appreciate because the insights are basic insights are good, but one where a non-professional just anybody could pick up and also enjoy. So it's, right. you know, written well enough to just capture anybody's attention, but also still has a real insight in there that even somebody who's a professional will go. Hmm. So these guys are like that. I think these are guys, you know, you can read it on one level and just enjoy it for just for, just for the pleasure of reading it. And, you know, they're, like I say, they are, they're good writers. And then you read on another level where they're actually you know, making some very profound mm -hmm. um, points about investing and human psychology. So definitely, so it's a hard thing to master. Yeah. So um, are there are some. I mean, I'm thinking of people who are who are perhaps starting out a uh, starting out a library, um, and maybe maybe it's a library, a financial library for with investing in mind or. Or maybe just more broadly speaking, but are, are there some kind of, are there some kind of, if, 
some basic building blocks that, uh, you know, if heaven forbid your library became the library library of Alexander burnt to the ground, what, what do you right. start with? You say, okay, I've got it. Like, can't do without these. Just <laughs> that's, that's funny you mentioned that because I've had that thought experiment before. Yeah. Because <laughs> a lot of this, a lot of what I have, of course, you know, is inertia. And I think, well, if I didn't yeah. already have it, would I buy it again? You know, I, I think about that sometimes. And yeah. I, I have had that thought experiment. I said, well, what if it all, what if it all was gone? And I just start over. What would I buy again? One of the keystones. Yeah. And it's a hard question because um, part of me says you, I would just buy just as I go again, mm-hmm. where I wouldn't go at it with any particular plan. I would just continue to read as I was reading and just let it build from there. Mm-hmm. And of course, there would be some things I would acquire again when I wanted to look at them. But you know, when I think about the things that I, yeah, some of the keystones. So yeah, I mean, we've mentioned a number of them. So I feel like I would have to get Mike Korzybski and Bucky back and uh-huh, uh-huh. get some of my Bellmans back and Bourdain. And uh, yeah, my, I'd have to get my Sosnoff back somehow, my 100 to 1. But a lot, a lot of those books, uh, yeah, some of, the, some of the philosophy books I really enjoy, I would probably get again. I'd probably get my Seneca again and my Epictetus. And, oh, yeah. Um, we, didn't, we didn't even touch on the classics. We didn't even touch on those. Thing. Like, you know. That's a whole that's other whole, another whole session. Yeah, yeah, my Henry David Thoreau. I mean, that's another one that's kind of inspirational. I like. I like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure there there are certain others. Yeah, I mean, I certainly I'd probably get a lot of Alan Watts again. Woodhouse. You know, I have quite a bit of stuff that I've had a long, around a long time, like Mencken and Albert J. Nock. Yep, the guys yeah. I enjoy still, even to this day. You know, it's interesting that too. It's one thing that changes is that, you know, when when I'm younger, I'm much I was much more into the like ideological like now when I mean the state, I'm just thinking with, with Yeah, yeah, with Knox, like the much example. more hardcore like ideological bang, bang, bang. But yep. then as you get older, you get more interested in the guys who are a little more, let's say, flexible and open mm-hmm. in their thinking. So I you know, I still making and knock both still hang around because I think they were that way. Mm-hmm. They were they weren't ideologically committed they didn't go around reciting chapter and verse that you know so and so said this you know they were <laughs> they reacted to things as they happened and uh knock was another great traveler he wrote a very nice book where he traveled to france um and i read that i brought that with me last time i was hanging out with bill at the as his chateau <laughs> 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 and that was a nice book to read then so yeah, that's a great question. That's kind of the those are the kind of things I would think about replacing. Yeah, that's. I feel like uh, <clears throat> I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation that I've just moved into this this new apartment, and uh, my books are always the last thing that I unpack. Whenever I get into a new place, I get all the furniture out, get yeah. the bed, hook the fridge up, you know, all the, all that kind of stuff. But I like to take my time unpacking my books because you know, depending on how long you've been in the last place. Right. Uh, and no matter how pedantic and I'm, I'm fairly fastidious with where I kind of catalog things and archive things, but, you know, things get messy and they get out of order and eventually just kind of, kind of let it, uh, kind of let it have a life of its own. But I always get into a new place and it's maybe a week or two when I start looking at, you know, places around the apartment where I'm going to put the shelves, where I'm going to put this stuff. And, and then I like to, you know, open a nice bottle of wine 
and put yeah. some music on and then just unwrap them and you know like they're like old friends it's like having right, a, right. like a, like exactly a party right. with a bunch of that's, friends that's, that's one of the pleasures of having a library sometimes at night i do i'll do exactly what you say and just kind of wander on my, my own shelves and pick out things and read little bits of things again and mm. that's one of the nice things about having them i mean other guiding principle and replacing i think would be you know wit and humor those are two things i greatly admire and yeah. so a lot of the guys I mentioned to you actually are already are among the wittiest people I have in my library and they would be the ones I replace. Those are the ones you go back to, you know, mm -hmm. you laugh and you get inspired. Um, so speaking yeah. of wit. <laughs> oh, right. Uh, that would be a good segue. segue. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, one of the, one of the great sardonic wits, uh, alas, no longer with us. And actually one of uh, someone that you, whenever I get a, an email from uh, from you uh, around I think it's when it's it's mid December, isn't it? Uh, right, around mid December. Uh, December fifteenth, uh, I think. I think but something you must have it. you must have it on your calendar. But it was the year that uh, Mr. Christopher Hitchens passed away, right. and I or the date that he did. And I remember. Well, every he, time it happens, you know, somebody on Twitter says something too. So it's always right. uh, it always gets recognized somehow. And then I think of you because. We, we were in, at, in Nicaragua. When would that have been? Twenty twelve or something like that. I no, it was the, it was twenty eleven. It was December. It was twenty eleven. Be, yeah, because because we because were talking about day. it the <laughs> day before. Yeah. Well, it was the day before. It was that night. We were hanging out at that our room. Where we had a nice house. Yeah. And I remember yeah. we were on the balcony looking at the beach, and you were telling me about this guy Hitchens and saying I gotta watch these you know, YouTube things and we watched you, we watched a bunch of them. We were laughing, you know, we went through was, the, all the hitch slaps, the greatest the, hitch slaps. <laughs> I mean, he's so witty, this guy, this is another yeah. trait I greatly admire. I mean, he just be able on, it's just so quick on his feet and he's so yeah, witty is la no other word to describe it, but we were talking all about that. And then the ne very next day we were having breakfast and you were reading your laptop and you were like, ah, oh, you know, he, Hitchens died, you know, I can't believe you're like, oh, man, I'm going to miss that dude or something you said. And I was like, yeah, we were just talking about him. Yeah. So that's yeah. I'll never forget mm. that because and, and then when I asked you, well, what, you know, what should I read? And you recommended some things. And then so ever since then, of course, I've been hooked. Now I have I think I have pretty much all his books on me now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and, and I mean, this is a this is what 10 is coming be coming up on 10 years but when i think back uh to 2011 i try and reimagine the world uh as it was then and i mean it, it it was such a delight to you know pick up the the monthly copy of of vanity fair which used to write for or, or right. slate or you know, slate. These, other, these other publications that you know i would i would be just as enthusiastic to read a copy uh, to read a uh, his monthly column that i vehemently disagreed with as I would to read a, a, a column that I was kind of, you know, cheerleading along. And, and I, I feel like in the, in the 10 years since he's, since he's passed that, you know, we talked about this before, but we've become just so polarized and, and right. we're almost incapable of, you know, many people are almost incapable of reading anything that doesn't, you know, confirm their already preconceived biases and things like that. And I, I think that that's probably a pretty worrying trend when you can't, entertain two separate thoughts uh, without having to take ownership of, of one or the other of them. Yeah, we've talked about this within the context of Hitchens because we both really, you know, we admire his writing style and his wit and we laugh about things he says, but we disagree with so much what he said. Yeah, I mean, especially <laughs> sure. I remember, you know, it's like stuff on foreign policy and a lot of oh, his yeah. heroes would not be people we would choose. I mean, he, I'm thinking of like 
you know, Trotsky and Marx, and, you know. Yeah, goodness. I mean, it's very different from us in that way, but it's also, how can you not, you know, admire his range, his style, his wit. I mean, uh, and he had this uncanny ability that, you know, we've talked about that you could, he could just speak in sparkling prose. Yeah. I just feel like a lot of his speeches or even interviews, you could just take his responses and with some minimal editing, you would have a pretty nice column, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he spoke in, he spoke in column vernacular, it essentially spoke like, in like thousand word bites of just, uh, you know, immediately publishable prose. The other thing that I really admire about him uh, was his willingness to engage in debate with people. I mean, far above, far and above anything that I, that I would do, but he, yeah. And his ability to take criticism. So he'd deliver these biting criticisms, but then when they were put back to him, he was very chill about it. (laughs) People would, you know, he could even be humorous about it. I mean, he was a very enlightened figure in that way. And I can remember reading stories of him, you know, of course he was famous for his debates with religious people and he would just go alone. He would just go and debate some reverend or pastor or something. I mean, it takes a little bit of courage and it tells you a little bit about him uh, you know, he valued argument for argument's sake. That was yeah. the thing for him. Uh, I remember seeing, uh, I remember seeing a dis- one discussion that he was having with the, you know, the so-called four horsemen of, of the apocalypse and one of the other, um, one of the other speakers at that particular roundtable asked him, <clears throat> so, you know, could you imagine, and they were talking about uh, theism and, and uh, organized religion at that time and somebody said to him oh so you imagine a, a world without religion and this is one of the, probably the most famous you know firebrand iconoclastic atheist going <laughs> in the world at the time and he his his response was his response was oh no i, I wouldn't have that not only do i not think it's likely but uh you know i enjoy the fight which yeah. i just thought was was quite quite remarkable it wasn't what you, exactly i, I remember that conversation that goes back to, uh, you know, we don't have time to get into the classics now, but that goes back to an idea that I really like. Um, and it's one of the pre-Socratics uh, Heraclitus's idea where he talks a lot about, about oppositional forces and they're, they're, you know, it shows up in, in Eastern philosophy with yin and yang. And, you know, we get these lots of, lots of an antiodroma is, is the basic idea in, uh, in the Heracletian uh, terms, but there's this, there's a very famous sculpture of two wrestlers that are leaning into one another on on the wrestling mat. And were it not for the fact that they're both applying equal but sort of changing pressure on one another, neither of them could stand. You know, they'd be they'd be flat out on on, on the mat. So there's this there's this tension between ideas all the time, and it's and we see it uh, you know in right. all walks of life. And, and once you start paying attention to it, it's you know it's very difficult. It's very difficult to to miss and to avoid, but I mean, it just is something as simple as a buy and a sell. You know, you always right. have this tension on on, right. on both sides that create uh, an an energy in the middle, and that's kind of the spark of life. Uh, and and that's how you you know you I don't know if this is the right way to put it, but it's like you you have to appreciate the differences, appreciate even your enemies, because that's how you yeah. define yourself. You know, there's no up with down, up down. There's no black without white. There's no so you define yourself partly by oppositions to these different ideas and tensions, and they all go together. I mean, if there was, like Hitchens said, basically implied, if there, that, that side didn't exist at all, what, what, what would he be? What would be the fun? You know? So maybe, maybe on that note, I'm, I'm cognizant of your uh, 
time, but maybe on that note, um, you, you could mention uh, perhaps somebody that that you thoroughly disagree with, but that you think would be worth knowing his philosophy, uh, if if only to know where where the where, where well, the enemy you know was that, headed, so so to speak. Well, yeah, you know, I, I well, if I gave some more thought, I might answer differently, but. I'll give you the first name that comes to my head because I was reading it recently. It was Thomas Hobbes. It's oh, Leviathan. Okay. Leviathan, yeah. Nasty, brutish, and short. That's Absolutely. A, it's a, it's yeah. a, he has a very dim view Oof. of human nature. Yeah. And he would be an absolute buzzkill at a dinner table. Oh, like, man. He seems like, seems like, although I read also read a biography of his, and apparently he was, eh, he, he was, yeah, he was a bit that way, actually. They said right. they, they, there was some club. I remember they didn't invite him because exactly he was a buzzkill. He was like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that but, Hobbes uh, guy again. Oh, oh God, who exactly. invited him? But yeah, Jeez. You know, he's a believer in absolute monarchy, a very strong yeah. government, and he had this dim view of human nature. So, like, he reaches these conclusions that almost—I mean—very few people would agree with. But what's right. it's more interesting to read about how he gets there. And how he thinks, because sometimes you're like, well, you know, that's not a bad point. You know, it's like, right. well, that's a good point, you know, and then, but it challenges <laughs> you to think about, well, why is he wrong there? You know, right. Um, and, and you have to reframe, I think, those kinds of thinkers. We were talking just before about Karl Marx, for example, like those kinds of thinkers, they, uh, they do challenge, they do tend to challenge things, not, not necessarily in totality, but they may have some interesting little tidbits along the way that, that force you to flesh out and refine um, your your own yeah. position on, on things that you might not have thought very deeply about before, even if you end up, you know, vehemently disregarding, uh, disagreeing with that particular author on any given subject. It doesn't hurt to, to sharpen your own, uh, your own perspective from time to time. Yeah, and that's why I've learned to res- respect the, uh, the classics like this, because there's a reason why Leviathan is been such an influential book and is still in print all these years, you know, three centuries more later. And right. it's because it's a, it's a book that's really rich in ideas and, you know, he makes you think he makes some arguments that make you stop and think, even if you totally disagree with them, that make you. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's the good thing about Marx is another really good figure that way. He's definitely somebody I would think of in that light as well. There's some things mm-hmm. in Marx that are, really make you think worth worth reading you can see why he's been you know a compelling figure for a long time i remember you know why i used to talk about my economics friends austrian friends and i would tell them the same thing about Keynes. it was remarkable how few people had actually read him Keynes yeah. at times is a pretty good writer but and, and, and also a, and no slouch in the investment field a very yeah. good investor he was also pretty witty some of his yeah. investment memoranda are very funny laugh out loud funny uh so what was his line about what was his line about um, you know when when the information changes I change my yeah. mind what when what, the facts change that's, that's right. his cl- that's his classic when I, when the facts yeah. change I change my mind sir what do you do <laughs> <laughs> that's difficult to come back to isn't it <laughs> yeah yeah he also his, his apparently his last line or his last words were apparently also I really like he says I should have had more champagne more champagne uh, yeah I love that line I love that I th- line. I think about that frequently when, when raising a glass. Let's all do as Keynes. <laughs> yeah. Let's all do as Keynes wishes he had more time to do. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but that's a, that's a good message for people anyway. Okay, mate, that's probably uh, a pretty good one to end it on. I think we can put, I'll try and rouse up some uh, links to all the books that you mentioned below. Obviously, some of them out of print, but people might be able to get them on. Right. 
Amazon. Yeah, well, I was going to bring up this one or something. Oh, that, well, arguably, yes. <laughs> that was going to be it. my recommended starting place for people. So. Oh, very good. Yeah, and uh, his. Uh, you started. You recommended God is not great for us, which I read, and that was fantastic. Yeah, and, and, then, and then I asked you again, what else should I read? You said arguably, so then I read that. <laughs> <laughs> And he's then after much, that, I found my I found my way around. Anyway, yeah, yeah. He's he's got a couple of uh, shorter kind of uh, compilations. Uh, one is mortality that he was writing when he was when he was dying right. of cancer, which is that, remarkably that humorous perfect. for a man oh, who is funny just going and through the, very sad. I remember reading that. Yeah. I was like, man, that yeah. sucks. Yeah, that was a bummer. I mean, um, it literally just sort of dissolves at the end, you know, and. Yeah, it becomes, becomes fragmentary and yeah, you're, you're watching a, a, a mind being pulled apart right at the end. Yeah. That was very difficult. But, and then also his, um, his Letters to a Young Contrarian, a title yeah. which he fought with his publisher because he hated, as right. a typical contrarian, he hated even the word contrarian because right. that raised his-, raised that's, his an, uh, that's an excellent book. His ire. Uh, my my copy of that has got a lot of highlighted passages as well. It's, yeah, yeah. A very good book and then uh, of course we'd be remiss if we didn't mention mr may your own books which should be of course on on every listener's bookshelf from <laughs> how to invest like a deal maker all the way through to the next uh, chapter of of the hundred bagger yes um yeah era so we'll we'll link to all those guys as well but uh, all right mate I really appreciate it. This is yeah. uh, this is fantastic. Get to talk to one of my favorite writers and thinkers, and one of, about one of my favorite subjects. Good books. That's awesome. So a lot of fun. We Hopefully, we can do it in person sometime. Cool. Definitely. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. You can find more conversations like this in the members-only section of our website at bonnerprivateresearch.com. If you would like to contact us please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonaprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.